Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. After a month-long bull run, the market lost ground last week on worries that the economic outlook in Europe and China are rocky as investors sought safe haven in the dollar while also girding for the Federal Reserve's annual Jackson Hole Symposium. That will be on Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern time for anybody who's interested in tuning in, where Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is expected to continue his hawkish stance on inflation. The trick, however, is whether America's central bank can get the balance right, help tackle inflation without tipping the economy into recession, even though fewer people think uh, that uh, the United States is going to be in a bad recession. Indonesia's Prime Minister, Joko Widodo, who is hosting the upcoming G20 uh, summit, has invited Xi Jinping as well as Vladimir Putin as the White House calls on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, to attend the key economic gathering. Good news for Germany and Europe. Water levels on the Rhine are rising, allowing trade to resume. Turkey is getting another S-400 missile battery that came in the midst of Russia's flagship Army 2022 uh, trade show. Uh, The first time this major gathering has happened since Moscow launched its war on Ukraine, American Airlines has joined United in also ordering the new supersonic jetliner being developed by Boom, earning the scorn of one or more of our panelists. We'll hear about that in just a moment. Joining us to discuss all of this and more, including venting their spleens about uh, supersonic travel, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusta of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners uh, in London, now having decamped to the shores of Lake Como uh, in August, as one does, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, back from having taken up apartments uh, in both Croatia and Basque Country. I'm beginning to get a complex about this, uh, and I should note that the um, Epstein family returned from a great Irish golfing uh, holiday as well. Everybody, welcome back to the program in the doldrums of August, where uh, the Maradian family remains firmly ensconced uh, in uh, northwest Washington, D.C., that's uh, great to be here, Vago, and uh, actually great to be back. It's great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yes, as, as you join us from a car somewhere near the Mont Blanc Tunnel. But uh, anyway, nobody needs to know the full production details of how we managed <laughs> to get this get this program produced on a weekly basis. Richard, thank you very much. You're just up the street. Yes, indeed. Happy, perfectly normal weekend here in Washington, D.C., Vago. Indeed, where the weather is is, is lovely. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. Our coverage of Britain's leading air show was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And please check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who cleared the fog on naval and maritime matters. And the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Ron, talk to us about a broader market and what the Fed's going to do and what it all means for the defense and aerospace sector. Uh, there's a sense the U.S. recession will be a mild one uh, if, if we have it, God willing, uh, and, and, the, and the economic gods uh, willing. Uh, and investors are flocking to the dollar in part because of worldwide worries, which uh, is both good and, and, and bad. Um, among them is a more aggressive stance toward Taiwan, for example, and obviously Taiwan, a key economic 
uh, key exporter and, and player in the global economy. We've got inflation and economic worries in Europe in the, look at the Ukraine war. We have you know, UK economy as well. Walk us through all these dynamics and what we're driving people on the street, many of whom still remain on vacation in the Hamptons and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I think, a broad debate going on uh, around, you know, did we see peak inflation? Didn't we see peak inflation? Um, and you know, in fact, the bull market that we saw was it really just a, a, a bear market rally. Uh, there's different ways to define this sort of stuff. But if you look at some of the key metrics that, you know, we track, um, the week ended uh, the VIX index, which we look at in measure of you know, you know, kind of fear or whatever you want to call it, the market volatility. It ticked up a little bit. It was below 20. Now it's above 20. Um, the tenure has been trending back up. So we're just at, at back to around 3%. Just to remind everybody in the middle of June, it got up to about 3.5%. Uh, but I think what the bond market is starting to say is, hey, you know what, the, Fed, the Fed's probably going to raise more. And, you know, there's this this back and forth in the market. Is the Fed really going to raise more? Is it not? Is the, is the Fed faking? Is it not? There's a lot of that debate going on. Um, broadly, when you look at the uh, aerospace and defense group, just kind of looking at the large cap companies uh, on the week, the S&P was down a little over 1%. Uh, Boeing was down over 4%. Uh, Raytheon Technologies was uh, down about 1.5%. And the defense names broadly were up. Northrop was up about 2.5%. Lockheed up about 1.5%. General Dynamics up about 1.5%. So you did definitely see some rotation into things that are perceived as more defensive, pardon the pun, defense is defensive, but you saw that. But defense has been interesting. The defense has been participating in the market on both risk on days and also in risk off days. So during this, this bear market rally, if it really was a bear market rally or is a bear market rally, um, defense was a participant in that. One thing I'd like to highlight that I think is particularly interesting um, our, our quantitative research team you know, does some interesting work. And generally speaking, um, they have a rule that they've, they've tracked over the years. And it's a, it's, a, it's a rule that has a perfect track record, at least historically. And that doesn't mean in the future, it's always going to work, but in the past it has. Um, and typically the, the market bottoms when the, when the consumer price index, the CPI plus uh, PEs are below 20. Um, and right now the market PE is around 20 and the, and the CPI is around eight and a half. So we're well above that. Um, so this one technical indicator would, would suggest that we're nowhere near a market bottom and we've got a ways to go that PEs either have to adjust themselves or um, uh, uh, the consumer price index has to adjust itself. And just to remind everybody, if you look at real interest rates, um, you know, they're still very, very negative. Um, and generally speaking, um, that's another indicator that there still has some correction to come because, you know, real interest rates, you know, can't be or shouldn't be or haven't been historically negative for a long period of time. So let me leave it there. Uh, indeed, it's uh, right. I mean, it's a it's a complicated uh, dynamic as you as you look at the situation and everybody is trying to game out where uh, we're, we're all going to end up. Um, we, we don't know. And in part, I think, Modeling this is very, very difficult given the extraordinary factors uh, that are surrounding it, right? I mean, there are now climate risks we weren't taking into account that are having economic impacts. We have tensions between China uh, and and Russia, right? I mean, so that's just the, the tip of the ice, you know, and then supply chain and you know, a whole bunch of things that are, that are driving that. Um, Sash, uh, talk to us from a European economic perspective, right? Water levels um, on the uh, Rhine. 
um, measured at Calba, right, which is kind of a, a key uh, choke point, are showing there's you know going to be a lot more water, and that trade uh, outlook is going to look uh, pretty good. Talk to us about some of the drivers uh, that we saw from a European perspective and how it affected the group in Europe. Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, I'll start with water. Water. I mean, water is incredibly important in Europe. You know, we've got a drought as um, as as you have, um, and. Uh, the, the drought has affected, first of all, production of grain, which has meant that the uh, difficulties for Ukraine in exporting grain has made the price of grain globally worse. But it's also meant that European trade has been affected because huge amounts of industrial material goes up and down the Rhine uh, in barges. I mean, it sounds very 19th century, but the Rhine historically has been, and until this year, an incredibly reliable uh, trade route for heavy bulk materials. But as you say, um, you know, I mean, two weeks ago, the water levels on the Rhine were at pretty much an all-time low. We actually were at the um, uh, um, spent some time in Basel, where the Rhine was very, very low indeed. This week, slightly better. You know, there, there's been some rain. Um, uh, around Europe, although frankly, most of it's dried out by now and, and the water levels came up again. I'm not sure I would feel super optimistic about things, but on the other hand, we, we are going into autumn and we would expect the water levels to rise. But it just highlights the degree to which climate has a vote as well. And, um, you know, when everything else in the supply chain looks really crummy, not being able to move large amounts of stuff up and down the Rhine is exactly what some, some quite big industries, particularly chemicals, automotive, do not need. Um, broader, I mean, broader economic issues, inflation. Um, I, I, you know, I think we've said before, European, the European inflation cycle feels to me to be at least a quarter behind uh, the US inflation cycle. You're already starting to talk about has inflation peaked or not. Um, nobody is talking about that in Europe. The question is, how high does it go over the next one, two quarters? UK inflation has now uh, just gone over 10%. That is causing significant political uh, turmoil. Don't underestimate the degree to which that will cause, you know, the government, whoever it is, and we'll talk about, talk, talk about that and on, to do some uh, unusual things to try to, you know, ward off uh uh, you know, much broader political concerns about uh, the cost of living. But this is a similarly an issue in uh, Germany and, uh, you know, n a number of countries, uh, other countries across, across Europe as well. France, interestingly, still has very low inflation because they subsidise electricity and most power. So what's happening instead in France is the deficit is going up, which nobody notices in the short term. But boy, that's going to make you know, affording defence um, a year or two out much harder than it would have been otherwise. So, you know, nobody really escapes from this scot-free, but they they all take it slightly differently on the chin. Um, I should point out that each one of those barges would require something something around the order in the order of about a hundred tractor trailers uh, to move, and you're talking about thousands of barges at a time yeah. when there is a, a truck and truck driver shortage uh, in in Europe as well, right? I mean, so this is not an easy substitution route. Just like when oh. people say, "Well, hey, why can't the Ukrainians use train to move their grain?" One ship is going to move more grain, right? I mean, it, it's always better to have a train than a truck, uh, but one ship. Uh, makes a very, very big difference, uh, for example. And you were talking about economic problems. Um, the drought has been so severe in Spain, in Italy, in Germany, in France, in, uh, uh, you know, and, and Central Europe as well, that you have to really look at some very serious food production shortages, don't you, toward the uh, going into the winter, right? I mean, th this is affecting everybody. I mean, for God's sakes, there are, there are Roman 
bridges that have been uncovered that nobody's seen in the past, you know, 50 years, right? Yeah. And I mean, the food, the food shortages issue at the micro level, at the individual food item, they cause people to laugh. You know, the great French Dijon mustard shortage of 2022. But actually, when you magnify that across um, different grains, pulses, rices and so forth, um, and the the supermarket impact in terms of inflation is, you know, this cause is, is causing huge hurt now. Um, and the possibility that, you know, Europe might have the sort of political unrest that uh, causes government to lose their focus, for example, on the Ukraine is is very real. You have to consider, right, I mean, the Po Valley uh, is Italy's breadbasket. Uh, and so yeah. anybody who enjoys Italian pasta anywhere should be looking at um, what happens there? Because that's going to have downstream uh, effects. Oh God, don't make us eat domestic. No negative uh, repercussion. And, no, and and I'm I'm saying that as as jokingly. There are very very fine domestic pasta makers. Um, Richard, I want to go to you. Let's talk about commercial uh, travel. Um, over the past uh, couple of weeks, um, major American airlines have canceled large chunks of their uh, schedules. Um, you know, when when we were all at Farnborough, uh, Heathrow announced uh, caps on international flights to try to limit the number of people arriving. Um, the U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg rightly has has said, "Hey, look, if if it's the airline's fault and the flight is delayed more than three hours, you should buy lunch for your passengers. If you it is a fault of your own." Um, you should uh, and flight evening flights are canceled. You should put people up at hotels. Um, we've all stayed at hotels courtesy of uh, air travel um, when there have been problems. It's just now that they're so severe uh, that people are actually spending the night at, at airports at, at a time when we're looking at actually a rather dramatic shift. You know, we were talking about what New York downtown New York looks like. Downtown Washington is still remarkably empty. Uh, even if you have people who are in the office three days a week, not everybody is there at the same time. Um, a, a lot of restaurants uh, have closed. And so at this period, you could actually have people have said to me, you don't want air travel is too big of a hassle. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Right. Talk to us about what this challenge means and what it means actually going forward, because it's a question of whether people change habits. We were discussing this throughout the pandemic, right? Everybody's going to get back to travel. Everybody's going to charge. There are there are planes that are not flying full right now. So, you know, what what does this what does this mean? What are you seeing? What are the trends? Uh, and you know, we discussed this a little bit last week that we may have peaked. What does all of this mean in terms of what the travel market looks like from your standpoint going forward? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, first uh, from the consumer protection standpoint, I you know I think this is kind of good. I hate to say it because you know it's always it's never a great thing when governments try to get involved with uh, regulation for you know this sort of well we don't like this uh, you know therefore we we've, we've got to regulate it. But there sometimes is warranted, and and you know the airlines did forget that you know taxpayer money kept them going. And then they, frankly, in many cases, didn't do their part in keeping capacity and and skilled people uh, there with that money. So I think this kind of reaction is necessary. And frankly, U.S. consumer protection for airline travelers is just a lot less robust in Europe. And it's not like the, uh, you know, it's not like fares in Europe are particularly high. If anything, they might be lower with the likes of, you know, Ryanair, EasyJet, Wizz Air, whoever else. And none of them are screaming murder because of these consumer protections. So I, I don't think it's a bad thing, quite frankly. But impacts demand, you know, there are certainly markets, most notoriously New York, Washington, where there are very, you know, extremely valid substitution effects. And I, I went to New York not very long ago and yeah, the airlines, of course, you know, well, they canceled my flight. 
And so I took the train and I found myself saying, I think I'm going to do this more often. And uh, whenever you and I travel together, New York for whatever purpose, you know, we typically look at a wide array of alternatives. That's not true for most air travel markets. So the question becomes, do people just travel less? Leisure travel, um, maybe, but on the other hand, most people have relatively time-limited vacations and they're going to be valuing that time. And air travel was simply a lot faster than any other form. So I don't think that's going to change things very much. As for business travel, you know, uh, that's always been about economics. You know, does it make sense to make this and, you know, in terms of the revenue it brings in, in terms of customer facing, in terms of worker connectivity, you know, all those other things. I don't think passenger comfort is very important for most <laughs> company managers, sadly. Um, so in other words, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. Um, you know, I keep coming back to the old Yogi Berra joke, you know, and no, it, we're, we're to paraphrase it, nobody travels for business anymore. It's too crowded. It seems like business travel is coming roaring back. I don't think that's going to change things. Again, I, I, I totally get the whole point of additional protections and, uh, and, and, and regulation for consumers. But I don't think you're going to see some kind of massive retreat away from air travel. It is, however, very interesting. You know, there are so many factors going on in determining growth rates for air travel and just Airbus and Boeing moving from the typical 4.8% per annum growth forecasts to something in the mid threes, you know, whether it's maturing economies, whether it's just some sort of ecological concerns, understandable, or whatever else, you know, something has shifted, but I don't think it has much to do with the inconvenience of travel. Ron and, and Sash, do you guys want to weigh in on this briefly and on where you think the market is going? Yeah, I mean, I'd just sort of add one thing to um, what Richard has said. Um, Vaga, you, you mentioned Heathrow uh, early on. Uh, and Heathrow, you know, arbitrarily imposed 10% plus schedule cuts on the airlines. In fact, what they did is they imposed a cap on the total number of passengers per day that could come through Heathrow. Um, this is not a very capitalist thing to do, let's be honest. Uh, and... Airlines pushed back a lot, um, particularly Emirates, because Emirates puts large volumes of passengers through Heathrow uh, with its A380 fleet, but, you know, predictably also uh, IAG, British Airways. But here's the thing. Um, four weeks after Heathrow has done that, uh, did that, and, you know, there was widespread opprobrium for it. Do you know what? The airport is working again. And everybody I've talked to who's flown through it in the last uh, week, 10 days, said it was an entirely pleasant smooth flowing experience again you know baggage was not being lost queues were utterly um uh, you know acceptable at security and everything else so um the fact that the faa is doing the same thing in the us uh you as a passenger you'll probably find if your flight is uh, has survived that you'll get a better experience from it uh who knew i guess the one thing i would add which is which is interesting you know we, we published a note this this past week looking at the park fleet and what we're starting to see is um a climb in parked freighters. Uh, and it's not just one fleet type, it's sort of across the, the freighter market. And um, it, it seems like maybe we've seen, um, or there's some dynamic going on in the freighter market where maybe it's peaking and you know demand for um, air freight. Um, and I think this all dovetails with kind of what you opened up the podcast, podcast with in terms of global economic growth and then how that all 
back feeds into the whole system on air travel and so on and so forth. So I guess I'm, I'm a little, because of that, it just makes me a little cautious on, you know, where air traffic's going from here and, and so on and so forth. I mean, a, a trend that we've seen because of COVID is these surges in demand for things that then revert to the mean. So during COVID, we saw surges for exercise equipment at home. And I think we're going through a surge in, in travel because people couldn't travel for a while, but but ultimately it all kind of reverts back to a mean. Uh, and it's gonna be reverting back to a mean in an economic environment that's probably more challenged than anybody hoped. So not to be Debbie Downer, but I guess I'm a little more cautious because of that. The reason I'm sharing this is more people are asking, do I need to take this trip? In a way that I think folks were somewhat more on autopilot before it's, I have to take this trip because I have to take this trip. And I just find it interesting that people are putting sort of a metric over it. Do I really need to take this trip? Do I know the people who are already there? Is there going to be a value add to it? And, and that's the only that's the only reason, you know, is there a substitution for me to do this? You're, you're absolutely right, Richard, right? I mean, basically getting between New York uh, and, and Washington, you got to take the train or a luxury bus, right? I mean, it ends up better for you net, net, net travel wise, depending on where you are in the city. Um, but, uh, you know, whereas air travel has always been a problematic uh, thing between these, these two cities, right? When it works, it works well, and it's, 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 it's okay. Um, but then you're stuck in traffic, right? Uh, on the FDR drive or something. Um, so um, anyway, but there's just a need, need to uh, keep, uh, moving on. I want to bring you in, uh, Sashay, because your time is a little bit shorter uh, now. Uh, but but also, I think it's important to discuss what the leadership race is going to mean for UK defense, obviously one of the world's most uh, important generators of global security. Uh, so the capabilities really matter. And then the industrial capabilities of the nation are, are vital. And we're seeing a whole bunch of signs post-Brexit, post-pandemic, um, uh, uh, that are not particularly positive. Um, and, and as you've said on this program and others have, Al Dr. Alex Walmsley joined us and she sort of reiterated the message, the spending picture for the future looks quite challenged. And on top of that, you have to overlay uh, what Rishi uh, Liz Truss and, and Rishi Sunak have been saying, which is to subordinate the Bank of England with, with Andrew Bailey's <laughs> apparent acquiescence uh, to number 10. I, I want to get your sense on how markets are going to respond uh, to that because they tend to respond negatively to it. And, and Liz Truss looks like she's leading, so she dressed the Maggie Thatcher part and looks like she's poised to, to get the big job. What, is, what happens to UK defense either way? Because this drama is going to sort itself out in the next week or so. Um, yeah, OK. Well, I mean, last near last point first. Uh, I think it would be a pretty remarkable now if Liz Truss did not uh, become the next prime minister. Um, I mean, polls of party members are very, very inaccurate because there, um, there are not good, there's not good data on who party members are, certainly not that can be released to pollsters, but still, um, I think it'd be very, very un, uh, unusual given um, all the work that has been done uh, um, on, on this for her not to become prime minister. Um, she's a paradox because she has been foreign secretary, but she's very clearly not terribly interested in foreign policy, except in you know, the last two years or so that, she, or that she's been doing the job, um, when it has suited her and her profile. Um, uh, so she has liked having a, a very high profile for herself politically, but she's has said 
very clearly to some other people, foreign policy isn't what interests her. What in, I mean, in as much as anything interests her, it has tended to be domestic stuff. Um, does she know or even care about UK defence industrial policy? No evidence of that whatsoever. The one thing that I think the defence industry should pray for is that Ben Wallace stays in post as defense secretary um, because he clearly get you know he clearly gets it he he has a very strong view of what de, uh, defense policy uh, should be and defense industrial policy in particular uh, sadly there is a very strong tradition of new prime ministers coming in and putting their own people into the post and Ben Wallace might be seen as being just a little bit too popular, a little bit too uh, powerful. He's a tall poppy who who needs to be cut down. That's that's my worry anyway. Um, in which case, frankly, you know, your guess as to what the UK does is um, probably even better. Uh, is probably better than mine. I Liz Truss has been involved because she's foreign secretary in the whole of the UK's. Uh, policy on Ukraine, but she's been very much the third member of the triumvirate with Boris Johnson and Ben Wallace uh, leading on that. Um, she has hi historically been pretty hawkish on China um, and clearly hawkish on uh, Russia. Will she actually carry through with that when she sees what the costs are? Personally, I doubt it, but I'd, I'd love to be proved wrong. Uh, but, it, you know, she is a... Um, it, it, there is this problem that it's very hard to point to what policies, what politics she really encapsulates apart from herself. Um, I would uh, I would point out she was also uh, international trade secretary, succeeding uh, Liam Fox, a former uh, defense secretary. Uh, Liam was very passionate about defense. Anne Marie Trevelyan was very passionate or more passionate about defense than Liz Truss. Although you could say that she did talk a good game when she was in uh, the international trade job about the importance of of um, uh, the British defense industrial sector, um, having talked to her a couple of times at, at DSCIs and, and other events uh, over over the years. Um, how do you think the Bank of England thing plays out? Uh, because it's astonishing that any uh, leader of an independent central bank and one as important as the Bank of England would suggest that subordination to the political masters at number 10 makes any sense at all. And yet, uh, a former chancellor of the Exchequer and a foreign secretary are suggesting exactly that if they um, get elected. Well, here's the rub. It takes us back to where we were 20 years ago. Uh, it takes us back to exactly where we were 20 years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm conflicted in this. I, I have very little sympathy for the, for the governor of the Bank of England because he used to be our regulator. Um, personally, I don't think he was an at all good regulator. And I think he's brought a lot of this on and the bank has brought a lot of this on by not managing inflation well enough early, early enough. And on that basis, um, you know, that I, I have a very, very limited amount of sympathy for them, even though this is going to cost them, you know, the, the, this, this may cost the, the, the bank some of its independence. I suspect it won't be as bad as, as, as it's being made out to be uh, now, but, um, uh, you know, if what it means is that there is uh, much greater political direction over what the inflation rate target targets should be and the timescale in which those are achieved, frankly, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, we've got uh, about five minutes left in this uh, quick uh, take uh, program, uh, and I'm going to move uh, to Richard to get his sense uh, on uh, the Turkish order. Uh, for S-400s, uh, Russians saying it's a new order, Turks saying no, you know, the original contract covered several batches of S-400s. Uh, obviously, Ankara's decision to acquire the S-400 is why it got sanctioned by NATO and dropped from the F-35 program uh, and indicating that the Turks really 
are perfectly comfortable being uh, in this um, uh, position as they try to straddle uh, their interests with uh, the Russians uh, and their obligations in, in the Atlantic Alliance. Um, Richard, how does this dynamic change uh, anything? Sasha would like to get your take before you uh, punch out as well. Uh, and what this means actually for the European fighter market as well, because you see all of this as conjoined. Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it's a new order or whether it's uh, additional ship sets for an existing order, it doesn't really matter. There's just a greater level of Russian air defense equipment in Turkey, obviously, with all of the data transmissions and leakages that come with that. Yeah, and that greatly complicates the very big issue. Turkey, you look at the entire world fighter market, not just Europe, but all of it. Turkey stands out as this country that wants to be some sort of big power and yet has a ridiculously obsolete combat aircraft force with absolutely no plans to recapitalize it. The plan, of course, was just solve everything with F-35. Well, the S-400 killed that. It looks like the second shipment could embolden people uh, in Congress who want to stop them from getting F-16s too. Okay, uh, Erdogan has this idea of creating an indigenous homegrown combat aircraft. That's really not easy as every experience around the world has taught us, knocking a bear fruit for many years and even then only with massive amounts of Western equipment. Um, maybe at one point, you know, cynically, uh, the Russians might have been an answer. No longer because, well, <laughs> just everything. Maybe, maybe, just maybe he goes to Eurofighter or Rafael and says, we need 100 of each. That's our only answer. Um, that would, of course, be a profound invention that maybe they can't create their own combat aircraft. But either way, you know, they're, they're the only power in the region that doesn't have a plan to get an AESA radar. Uh, they've got this fleet that I think on average is close to 30 something years old, mostly old, old, old F-16s. The last new F-16s were imported sometime in the 90s. Um, and yet they fancy themselves as a serious power. Something's got to give here. And this complicate this development complicates whatever that thing is. Sash, let me bring you into this because, uh, you know, the, the Brits uh, did at first uh, hope uh, that the Turks would be part of the Tempest program, uh, as well as the Saudis. Uh, obviously, the Japanese uh, are coming into the program. Uh, so that was also one of the original dreams and fantasies, which are proving to prove real. Um, what what happens, do you think, right? I mean, to talk to us a little bit about how the fighter, I mean, A, sort of more broadly what the move means, uh, but second, what it means for the combat aircraft market. I mean, first of all, Broadly, the S-400 story, Erdogan is very happy to burn his boats. He's very, very happy uh, to, you know, I mean, and I, I think we should almost stop calling him a member of NATO or, or Turkey a member of NATO because it's, it's only a member of NATO in certain respects, you know, in certain geographical contexts. But in terms of, you know, being part of the NATO defense against Russia, it's not that anymore. Um, Erdogan has, has totally changed that dynamic. Um, and frankly, if they weren't really good at producing drones at the moment and hence helping the Ukrainians, I think the mood would have hardened against Turkey way more. Um, in terms of fighters, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the UK and, and France have, have both talked to Turkey in the past. Uh, Turkey at one stage w uh, wanted BAE as a partner in, the, um, in their uh, fighter programme. They talked to Rolls-Royce about engines and so forth. Again, I think 
at present, if um, you know the, the the message would be sent pretty clearly and received very clearly, um, you know, from the US to, to the UK, this is this is just not an acceptable thing. France has actually played its cards in favour of Greece. Now it's you know it's possible that they could supply both sides. I think that would be very hard. Um, I mean, it, it's always the dream of an armed supplier to supply both both sides, but it hasn't really been done very well for about a hundred years or so. Um, but you know, France is France is supplying thirty six Rafales to Greece and would love to supply uh, as many again. Um, and I think that tells you that the Turks are going to be left to do an indigenous fighter, which will, you know, as Richard said, take longer, cost more, and not be very good. Um, I want to uh, shift gears uh, and ask everybody about the decision uh, by American Airlines to buy some uh, boom uh, supersonic uh, jetliners, joining United, uh, obviously, in its uh, launch order. Ron, uh, start us off, uh, and then I want to get Richard and Sasha's take uh, as well. I think I think that we all know Richard is a giant fan of this, but I wanted to have you know you start this off uh, and and what you made uh, of the order. Uh, ultimately, uh, and whether you think it's a good idea or not a good idea. Yeah, I guess my initial impression was um, maybe it was a bit of FOMO, you know, fear of missing out uh, on the American side, given you know, United's order. Um, and, you know, I, I maybe frame it that way. But I mean, of course, there's all kinds of questions around development of aircraft, development costs, you know, does, does Boom have that um, it's interesting, you know, the, the aircraft uh, changed uh, how it looked. They came out with uh, another design of it um, at Farnborough. It looks a lot more like Concorde than it did before. Um, kind of makes you scratch your head. Maybe Concorde was a pretty good design in the first place. Um, and, and then there's always questions around supersonic that just got transatlantic capability as opposed to something that can do, you know, true trans-Pacific. Um, I am a believer, as you know, in speed, right? I mean, it's speed, it does seem like it is the one area where things really have, you know, kind of gone stagnant or even maybe even slowed down relative to the beginning of the jet age. Um, you know, we've, we've got uh, you know, material science has moved forward, engine technology, cockpit electronics, all kinds of things have, have gone forward. If you look in the private jet market in terms of cabin volume and you pick your metric, but the one, the one thing that we really haven't tweaked too much is um, speed. So I, I, I do believe that there is something that can happen with speed. Um, you know, if indeed it's boom uh, uh, at a commercial airline or not, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, there's plenty of challenges out there for them to overcome both on the aircraft fabrication side and on the airline side. So let me leave it there and hand it back. Richard, your sense? And I should point out, right, you were on Aviation Week's podcasts, uh, showering love uh, on, on the deal uh, as well. I should point that out to our audience, but continue. Well, I think it's very simple. This is advertising, nothing more. It, you know, you look at the amount of money that changed hands. I'm sure it was very, very small if there was any. Uh, they say it was. And I'm sure it'd be a lot less than placing ads in all the world's major publications simultaneously, much less, which means hey, they just did great. They got a lot of free publicity. Now, in the very unlikely event that there's somebody in fleet planning who said, you know, because of FOMO or whatever else, we see this thing. It's just been redesigned. It doesn't have an engine, which means being a technical professional in the airline industry, you should know they can't tell you anything at all about its performance because 
especially with the supersonic flight, it comes down to the engine and there's no engine. If that person then went and said, yeah, leap of faith, here's a bunch of non-refundable cash, that person should be fired immediately as grotesquely incompetent. I'm confident that person doesn't exist and that rather it's the marketing department that said, hmm, which costs more, a whole bunch of publicity or a uh, so-called deposit on a so-called jet. Um, that's great. This is all very fun. Now, in terms of speed being the future, this is about the only thing I think I'm ever going to disagree with Ron about. It seems that actually technological trends are mitigating against speed because of amazing onboard high-speed communications conductivity. In other words, on Concord's day, you used to be a prisoner trapped in midair. You get off, you ran to a payphone. Now you're going to be connected with a hologram in a couple of years constantly. So why compromise on everything else? And the compromises uh, to get to supersonic are enormous. You can't have your Singapore Airlines pod in that kind of fast speed jet. So anyway, I'm, I'm not buying any of this. I think it's all theater, uh, but, you know, made for something to talk about, right? I would say that you're also uh, opposed to Dr. Adam Polarski, uh, aviation legend uh, and oracle who does think speed is the next uh, big thing for what it's I love worth. Adam. I love Adam. Absolutely. But um, here again, good people can disagree. <laughs> yes, I see that. Uh, Sash, uh, let's uh, cap the program off uh, because I know that uh, we, we started when we were planning this, you were like, oh, I want to be sure I want to weigh in on this. So I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in before you guys uh, get back on the road and get in a tunnel through which we cannot communicate. Okay, right. Um, two things. I mean, I'm afraid I, again, I'm going to disagree with Ron um, and also with uh, Adam Pulaski about speed. I think the challenge for aviation is to retain social acceptability in terms of emissions, in terms of um, its impact uh, on the climate in the next 20, 30 years. Uh, aviation will not do that even with conventional speeded aircraft, conventional speed aircraft. Um, and this is the thing that worries the OEMs who have significant numbers of brain cells. They are aware that they're going to lose, lose the license to fly, or in their case, the license to produce aircraft, if aviation goes from being 3% of global emissions to 10% of global emissions, which is what, under some entirely rational mathematical models, it does by about 2050, because it then becomes the, one of the biggest emitters of uh, uh, carbon dioxide in particular, but a whole load of other stuff. Uh, on the planet. I mean, even bigger than Chinese cement plants, for example. So aviation has got huge challenges. Supersonic just makes them worse. And I think that if aviation is going to sacrifice anything to, re to, to retain social and political acceptability, speed, which after all only um, uh, benefits very, very rich people, that's the thing that goes. Um, uh, so I, d I don't buy the thing that speed is, is, is the next frontier. And, and the second thing I would just say is, um, I mean, I attended the, the Boone presentation at, at the Farm Bray show like a, um, a whole load of other people did. I think the idea that you can produce an aircraft that in my mind looks very like a B-58 Hustler, of which I think is a great design, is a lovely look, but you can produce something like that from scratch because they've only just restarted the, the design work. Um, and you can do that this decade is ludicrous. It's, you know, any, any highly competent aviation company starting this from now it, they would be delivering it sometime in the 2030s boom says they're going to do it far faster than that that in my mind means they totally lack credibility ron i think you've got something to add before we part yeah so so one i'm not claiming there's not going to be challenges so um two it may or may not be boom 
there's you know it's it's a low probability venture right i mean it's, there's a lot of challenges to it um i i hear sash on the um the environmental impact piece but um private aviation is going to have to deal with the same thing um but i i do believe speed is the, the next place to go i mean it, you can be connected however you want to be connected but it's it's still not the same as being there and if it's purchasing carbon credits or however that environmental piece has to get offset um there will be creative minds that that think through that but you know i'm, I'm not insensitive to the the environmental piece and so on and so forth but um i just can't believe as we go out over the next 50 years that we're still going to be flying at Mach 0.8 at, you know, somewhere between 35 and 42,000 feet forever and ever. Uh, you know, I'm, I want to sort of second that and ask um, how advances in military aviation are also going to drive this, right? Whether it's with a future bomber, uh, whether it's for future reconnaissance, there is we've had more than a fair number of indicators that a lot of the most important companies in our ecosystem, uh, Lockheed Martin, which has a lot of experience with the technology, um, are moving in that direction. And we've heard from folks, even at the, the US Transportation Command and US Air Mobility Command about looking for rapid delivery worldwide, including spaceborne delivery. Um, Right, um, and, and certainly the use of hypersonic uh, platforms. Um, Sash, you've got to jump. Do you see any cross-connection before you jump between this demand for speed on the military side and it bleeding over into the commercial side of things? And then uh, Richard and Ron, and then we can end it there. Go ahead. No, military is a very, very low volume, low frequency user. Concorde was flying more hours supersonic with you know eight, a dozen aircraft uh in service than the whole of the world's air forces um you know the world's air forces will, will have some political issues associated with emissions but you know supersonic uh, travel as opposed to supersonic military use are very very different in terms of the impact they have Sash, thanks very much bon voyage see you next week pleasure thank you very much indeed richard yours and then ron uh brings us over the finish line yeah, I agree with um, with Sash. No surprise there, but uh, also I would point out that maybe we'll go in the opposite direction. Maybe, given demands for sustainability uh, and whatever else, and the emission reductions that come with, say, I don't know, prop fans, turboprops, anything that moves not at Mach eight one or eight two or eight three, but at I don't know seven seven or whatever. You know, maybe that becomes a really great way of achieving sustainable growth rates without attracting the opprobrium of, you know, the world's regulators and, and, and activists. So I, I think it could go either way in terms of speed, you know, it's just, it's just the laws of physics. Actually, we've moved towards an age of very high bypass ratios, 11 to one of the latest generation of engines that's away from the kind of, I don't know, 1.5 or two to one you need. And yes, maybe the military will come up with some sort of variable bypass engine technology, but as Sash says, that that's, optimized for military uses and unlikely to make any kind of uh, commercial platform uh, a go. Ron? Yeah, I, I guess on this one, I, again, I would respectfully disagree with my two colleagues. Um, let's look at 787 as an example, the composite skins. Um, 
for sure Boeing got lessons from the B2 on that. Um, right. So yeah, there will be technologies. There are technologies for sure that will be born in the military arena that will make their way into the commercial arena. It's, it seems implausible to me that it won't. Um, when we think about travel in the future, as Richard mentioned, and I agree with him 100% on this, um, there will probably be, you know, I call it maybe different modalities of propulsion. Uh, can you see bigger turboprop or turboprop-like aircraft with some sort of maybe hybrid or whoever knows propulsion? Sure, right? I mean, there are more efficient ways to move people around, but I, I don't think that the, the, the need for efficiency and the focus on the environment will exclude high speed. Um, I could be wrong. Um, who knows, right? PhD in engineering, I like kind of thinking about this sort of stuff. But um, again, back to my point, initial point there, I, I, it's just hard for me to believe that as we look, you know, 50 years in the future, that we're going to be flying slower um, in the same tubes that we've been flying for the past 50 years. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, I fall into uh, a category in between uh, you guys. I think um, environmental concerns are going to loom large uh, over this and put pressure on everybody, especially private aviation, uh, because if you look at it, those who are flying by themselves or with a couple of people in a G700 uh, generate a lot of pollution compared with aircraft that are much larger and flying many more people. And so you can amortize that across more seats. Uh, and indeed, those aircraft are cleaner. Um, but I think that there will be a speed component to this. And I think that people are going to want to pay for it. And I think people are going to want to boast about it. I mean, anybody who has a G700 feels themselves superior to people who have almost any other airplane, um, right? And so they're going to want to show off the fact that they are flying on a supersonic airplane. Uh, and it may be faster, but it's a hot rod. Uh, and I get there in three hours and you get there in seven. Um, and so I believe that that is a competitive element to the economy, whether or not you've got really, really good broadband or not. You want to be able to tell people, I had lunch in Paris. I had dinner in Paris and I flew back. And that's, people are, going to win, people are going to want to pay for that. And they may pay a lot of money. They may pay a very big surcharge for that. And I think they will. Guys, thanks very much again for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure having you on. Hope you guys have a great day, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Vago, always a pleasure. Thanks. Great to be on as always, Vago. Thank you.